Welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, episode number six, Mystical Convergence, recorded Thursday, November 9, 2006. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com. Actually, it stands to make tremendous difference. Controller responded, that's none of your business. A Mooney owner. Beechcraft. Piper owners twice now. The Cessna guy. I think our tower personnel there, I have to say, unfortunately, are substandard. Now here's the mystical convergence part. All right, so is everybody here? We're, I'm here. Then let's get going. It's been a little bit longer than uh, we liked since our last podcast, but life intervened, and so uh, we had to delay a little bit. But everything seems to be getting back to normal and back in order, and we're back here with episode six of Uncontrolled Airspace, our podcast. Let's see now. The gang we have with us uh, today, Jeb Burnside, Managing Editor, Aviation Safety Magazine, also contributor to AvWeb. Good morning, folks. Is here. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Fine, fine. Dave Higdon, aviation photographer and freelance writer. Dave, how you doing? Doing fine. Flattered fog here on a nice fall day in Wichita. What's going on in your life these days? Well, I'm a little bit of the cause of delay of game here for uncontrolled airspace because as of this morning, I'm wrapping up nine days in uh, Wesley Medical Center in Wichita for uh, kidney failure, from which I seem to be bouncing back pretty strongly and have a... uh, 100% 100% recovery expectation. It's been kind of a wild ride since Halloween night when uh, I was brought in for uh, headaches and wound up in an ICU unit for kidney failure. And I want to take a quick minute. I know some people out there know about this because we've had emails and we had to contact people for project purposes. Thanks to everybody for the emails and the cards and the flowers. It's been very, very warm, heartwarming and, and, and appreciated. Yeah, well, we're we're really thrilled to hear that you're on the mend. It, uh, it we we were actually preparing to record the podcast last Tuesday morning, and about ten minutes before we were scheduled to start is when we discovered that you would uh, were having some problems. But we're really glad to hear you're getting back on your feet. Welcome Thanks. back to the podcast. And for the and for the FAA medical examiner listening to this podcast, Mr. Higdon uh, uh, is really uh, uh, he's in Costa Rica uh, doing something uh, to foment a re- revolution down there. He's not really in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't really thought about that. Okay, well that's an interesting issue right there. Anyways, finally the other member of our virtual roundtable today is James Winbrand is back with us again. James is an author and aviation journalist, musician, and Mooney owner. How you doing, James? Great, great to be back with you guys today, and uh, it's great to have Dave with us. Absolutely. So we're all uh, so everybody's back home more or less now. I mean, which relative to uh, to last time when you guys were all down in Florida. So James, you're in New York City, is that right? That's correct. Jeb, you're back in Springfield, Virginia. That's correct. And Dave, you're someplace in the Wichita area, more or less at home, and right? I, I am in the veritable undeclosed location. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, you know. We, we sort of got into this. You, got, you guys did a little bit of snipping and sniping last time, so I'm going to bring this up. We're going to get this out on the table right here and now. All right. James is a Mooney owner, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Jeb, your airplane is? Beechcraft. A Beechcraft. All right. Now, Dave, I know you guys had to part with your airplane recently, but for years and years and years, you owned a? We've been Piper owners twice now. 
Okay. And although I don't own an airplane, sadly, I've been a renter and a club member for years and years and years. I'm basically a Cessna guy. Uh, I, uh, although I've flown Archers a bit, I think if you woke me up in the middle of the night and yelled at me, what kind of airplane do you fly? It would probably be Cessna. So, so, so there we go. We've confessed. We've had it on the table. There we go. That's our bias. Well, my favorite absolute airplane is the one I'm with. So there you yeah. go. And, and, you know, for those, again, for our listeners, we're always uh, interested in free samples from Cirrus, uh, Columbia, Pilatus, whomever. So. Piper and Mooney, Beach, right. Cessna, uh, Learjet, Bombardier, uh, Eclipse, Gulfstream, uh, yeah. Adam, Boeing, yeah. Airbus, McDonnell uh, Douglas, Spaceship One, General Dynamics, yeah. <laughs> Northrop Grumman, <laughs> Sukhoi, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, all right. And, and we won't even start down the list of kit manufacturers, we'd be here all day. One last bit of business I want to do before we move on to the stories of the day here is to point out to people that I've added a new feature to the Uncontrolled Airspace website, and that is a place where you can join a reminder email list. For those of you who choose not to get the uh, podcast by way of a subscription service like iTunes or Podcast Alley or so forth, if you'd like to get an email, a brief email, every time we do a new episode, you can do that now. Go to uh, uncontrolledairspace.com, and in the right-hand column, there's a little place where you can put in your name and your email address, and that'll get you on a list so that you'll get reminders every time we do something new. And as you might expect, we promise not to send you junk mail and sell your name to anybody. It's just for our podcast purposes, if you'd like to get reminders. And we're toying with the idea of adding a forum to the website, a place where everybody can kind of get together and discuss what things we've talked about in the podcast or other issues or make suggestions for future shows or things like that. We're thinking about adding that. We'd love to hear your thoughts about whether you think that's a good idea. You can always send us uh, feedback and thoughts and email uh, at uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Okay, enough business. So, uh, so what's it? My computer is actually sending. They shouldn't be asking me questions while we're doing the podcast. Let me make that go away here. Uh, um, Anyways, so what's going on? What's the stories? What do we want to talk about? Well, here we are on Thursday, uh, November 9, and I think the big news is uh, the congressional midterm elections. Yeah. I mean, what's so, does that make any difference? The, 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 the election results are going to have any impact on general aviation? Actually, it uh, stands to make a tremendous difference, particularly with reauthorization for the FAA uh, looming in the 2007 uh, calendar year in the, in the Congress that was just elected with a uh, very strong majority of Democrats in the House, because there's a fundamental change that happens when the majority party changes hands, and that's in the leadership of all the committees, the Speaker of the House, and coincidentally, control of the agenda and what legislation gets moved into and how hearings are held to advance legislation. So under the people that had been in control before, the the GOP for the last six years, legislation had moved in, for lack of a better phrase, a monotheistic way. They served as the gods of the schedule. Uh, Bipartisanship was at a minimum. They dictated legislation through meetings with lobbyists. Hearings were few and far between, and very often legislation came to the House floor with no opportunity to debate it or amend it. Not that you have an opinion or feel very strongly about any of this. 
No, I'm just reflecting the reality here. I mean, all you have to do is examine the record of how they managed legislation in the last three Congresses. Each year, or each Congress for the last three Congresses, the number of actual hearing days declined. Those uh, declines in hearing days were losses in days where legislation was uh, uh, aired and debated in committee. Well, with the Democrats back in charge, I have a feeling that we'll be seeing more in the way of uh, oversight and investigative hearings before legislation makes it to the floor, and that will not bode well for any lobbyists who were hoping to see uh, reauthorization legislation drawn up under the same system that existed with the GOP in the majority. That's come to a screeching halt. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Dave. I think another element uh, here has will be a set of new faces, not just uh, incoming newly elected members of the House or, the, or of the Senate, but just a wholesale change. For example, in the Senate alone, the Senate Aviation Subcommittee has lost two of its long-term members, including its chairman, Conrad Burns of Montana, who was defeated. Just last night it was announced that here in Virginia, the incumbent senator, George Allen, has been defeated. Uh, he was also a member of that subcommittee. It's in, in, the, in the House, there's, much, I think, many fewer changes in, in personalities and in people who will be on those subcommittees and committees, but uh, clearly the agenda will have changed. Mm -hmm. It would also seem that it's going to have uh, a large impact in the whole user fee debate. And uh, I know AOPA had uh, supported 143 candidates, I believe it was, and 90% of them were elected. And uh, AOPA feels that's going to be, make a, a big difference in terms of being able to defeat the user fee proposals. Uh, I guess uh, it would seem that the that the Republican-controlled Congress was much more amenable to listening to the airline's uh, song about the impact of its costs and how they should be apportioned. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I think we may also see a little bit more of a spyglass on what, what one friend of mine is, is, is becoming to, is coming to call the Federal Airline Administration because of its uh, seeming propensity to uh, inconveniently forget that there's something called general aviation out here that is part of the regulatory and operating environment along with the airlines. Well, it's extremely convenient for the FAA to forget that. It's somewhat inconvenient for users who happen to be general aviation operators. Particularly those of us in the airspace that would, would like to know things like, why do I have to divert for that traffic I can't see? And, and I think that kind of segues into an, another topic that uh, we had on our list. Yeah. Um, if you're going to talk I, about I, I want to hear about this. This is Okay. What happened? A couple of weeks ago now, in the southeast United States, being uh, uh, handled by a facility I will not name, cruising along at 8,000 feet on an IFR flight plan. Controller calls my number and, and requests uh, a descent from 8,000 to 4,000 feet, quote, for traffic, unquote. Now, I was about 90 miles or so out from my destination at that point, and uh, descent to 4,000 feet would have put me down in what I like to call Indian territory, where all the Cherokees hang out, <laughs> and wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. Of course, I'm flying a single-engine airplane, and uh, perhaps is not the best place to be either. So I asked the controller, and you know, I said, you know, I really don't want to do that. 
uh, is there kind of a plan B that we can come up with? And oh, by the way, where's the traffic? The controller responded, that's none of your business. Cool. Yeah. And uh, it just just really kind of set in motion uh, several things that I'll get into. But I, I'd kind of like to get everyone else's reaction here before I go on much further. Yeah, unconscionable is the first word that comes to mind because uh, we're we're as much customers in this business as is any uh, non-ticket tax-paying airline operation out there. We pay our fair share. We deserve equal level of service, and that's the way the uh, federal air regulations are written to deliver service. So being told that information on traffic that we're being asked to divert or descend to avoid, being told that's none of our business is completely, totally out of line. It is completely inappropriate, I agree. And is there some kind of standard? Let's t assume, for argument's sake, that this was the most uh, sensitive aircraft in uh U.S. airspace at the time, which would one could argue would be Air Force One. Is there some kind of standard separation that whereas anybody else you're only asked to descend a thousand feet for clearance, that, that there is some kind of standard that we don't know about, that, that, uh, that controllers are sort of given as a need-to-know basis to tell aircraft to get out of the way? I, I never heard of that about this, and, and I would agree that that's unconscionable. I'm not aware of any such standard. To, to, to put a little bit more meat on this bone, the, the crossing traffic at that particular point was multiple miles away on the order of 25 to 30 miles. And in fact, the potential con conflicting traffic, I later got a visual uh, uh, on. It was a Baron 58. It was crossing right to left. Baron, it was, it, it was a, yeah. Wow. And uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't any uh, um, important. It wasn't Air Force One. It wasn't Air Force Two. It wasn't uh, uh, anything special. The other factor here is that my route of flight would have had me entering an active MOA, an active military operations area, on an IFR clearance. However, none, none, none of that really none of that really should matter because. Uh, a vector, a delay, um, something of that sort would have resolved the traffic issue, and we could have discussed the MOA penetration. Why 4,000 feet? Why did they want... Uh, the, the, they... the barren traffic was at 6,000, and apparently, according to what I've discovered subsequently, the 4,000-foot clearance would have put me, A, clear of the barren, B, clear of the MOA. But again, that would have also put me down in the grass... Uh, a long way from my destination. Mm -hmm. But the 8,000-foot altitude at which you already cruised also kept you clear of the Baron. Exactly right. And, exactly and, right. And, and, and well uh, inside acceptable standards of clearance. Mm -hmm. So is there any follow-up on this? Have you have you talked uh, to any it, officials? Or? <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly have, and thank you for that, uh, that softball. After returning back home from that trip, I um, initiated a formal complaint. Uh, with the air traffic control facility. I've also done the FOIA request to get transcripts and copies of the ATC tapes. To make a long story short, having started this, this inquiry through that facility's quality assurance office, I have been assured, A, that uh, that's not the way that facility do, does business. B, I have been profusely apologized to by that facility. C, been told that that 
controller's actions were unconscionable and inappropriate and not the way that facility does business. And finally, been told that that controller will be receiving what I understand to be a letter of reprimand uh, in the controller's personnel file. And, and remedial will, training. And, and will receive remedial training. Wow. <laughs> That's very impressive. Uh, well, it's, it's, I'm not finished with this one. Uh -huh. um, and I, again, I'm reluctant to name the facility. But the, the punchline from where I sit is that not only has that facility in, in particular over my career been one of the more accommodating ones that I've, I've encountered, but this whole idea of giving general aviation uh, flights vectors and changes in altitudes, quote, for traffic, unquote, has become something of an epidemic. I've seen it in other facilities. I've seen it here in the Washington uh, Potomac Approach Control Facility. I've seen it in areas like St. Louis. And it strikes me as more of a workload reducing uh, action on the part of the controller than it is truly a, a traffic management or safety management action. Well, and I know, often, Dave, you have some strong feelings on this. We've, we've often felt in passing through uh, one Midwest sector and one Southeast sector in particular that uh, it was actually an active way of discouraging us from being there IFR. Right. Uh, you know, giving me my tail number and telling me that I needed to divert 40 miles off my route and back again to keep me out of airline airspace, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, there was on approach into a Class B airport, unacceptable, and very often if we weren't able to negotiate a compromise, which in my case was an offer of a lower altitude, if the weather was acceptable, I would A, cancel, and B, before I left the frequency, ask for the next segment for center once I left uh, that facility's airspace. So in other words, work with me or you're stuck with me anyway. And in, in doing so, I never encountered any traffic or heard any traffic right. that warranted me going 40 miles off my route. It was right. simply a matter of I was inconvenient. This is our way of discouraging him from being there. On another instance, I was told that they didn't want me to overfly their airport at 9,000 feet on a Christmas Eve flight once because they didn't, quote-unquote, like small airplanes overflying the airline airport. They actually said that on the yeah. frequency? On the frequency. Cool. <laughs> I, have, I have to say, uh, I fly usually VFR and uh, up and down the eastern seaboard for the most part, and I, I have not really encountered too much of that. Uh, you know, over uh, the northeast quarter areas, there will be some instructions to, to keep you out of uh, traffic going into Newark, traffic going into Philadelphia. IFR, certainly if you're coming north, they're going to amend your clearance when you get close to the Philadelphia area, and uh, that's when I would cancel if I can, mm -hmm. if I'm coming mm -hmm. uh, IFR, because I know they're going to route me all over the place when it'd be a lot easier just to go over the top. But now let me, the examples that you guys have described certainly seem unacceptable to me. I'm, I'm with you, all right? But with all we're hearing these days about there being not enough controllers out there and they're working six days a week and you know and not to really buy into their what someone described as whining um, maybe shifting a little bit of the workload onto the flying pilot isn't unreasonable I mean is there a middle ground here maybe maybe we can help oh, the... ab absolutely no doubt if uh, if we're gonna create a conflict 
that is a safety issue or is a, 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 an operations management issue. I know I'm always open to, and I, that's, I've flown with Jim enough to know that he's always open to either a reasonable accommodation or going with the flow. It's when we're shunted off to the side out of a lack of convenience or for some desire to, to, to keep from being inconvenienced for us that it kind of gets our tail spin up. Yeah. Well, I kind of consider it to be mushrooming, if you will. Okay. And if for those uh, who might not be familiar with the term mushrooming, it basically means feed, feed them manure and keep them in the dark. I see. Okay. Well, well okay, you're, you're talking about this also from the perspective of already being in the system. You're on an IFR flight plan when the subject is controller workload. I don't know anywhere busier, well, well, I guess O'Hare and whatnot, but certainly the controllers here in the uh, the Northeast are quite busy when you get into the Kennedys and, and such no like question. that. No and question. if you want to get a sense of who's doing what, try getting on these frequencies coming in VFR and try to get flight following. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are as accommodating as they can be. I think they're tremendous, do a great job here in uh, the Northeast area the New York Tracon, but you hear who's on frequency, and, and if they can't take you, it's because they're talking to airlines all the time. It's not because they're talking to GA aircraft that right. is clogging up the frequencies. It's like, very, very good point. You know, uh, three Papa Mike, stay out of frequency, unable to handle you at this time. You know, stay, well, well, stay out of our, our, our airspace. And, and let's keep in mind here that the, the, the issue that Jim and I are complaining about, and complaining is, 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 is the right word here, is not in airspace that's overly congested. It's not an airspace right. where uh, the uh, controllers are swamped with hundreds of airplanes converging on a handful of airports. Jeb's uh, little encounter was in a southeast sector that's got a fairly substantial workload, but it was at a time in, 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 a, in a, uh, a, a time and a location where the workload was not particularly heavy. My issues with the Midwest sector that uh, is, is my pet peeve it does service a class b airport but the treatment's the same there whether i'm going through during the push or whether i'm going through when there's hardly another airplane on the frequency right it's just a matter of they've drawn up operations rules to be as as little inconvenienced by little airplanes as possible now i know that they'll say that that's really not the case but if they want to get a uh, a contest up of their claims versus our ability to back them up uh, I believe between Jeb and myself, we could line up 25 pilots each with hands-on experience in these sectors who will verify through various experiences of their own the routine nature mm-hmm. of this kind of mishandling. Yeah. Well, okay. that brings up kind of the interesting human factors and uh, cultural question. The, the, the communication, Jeb, you've received back from the facility was that this is not at all the way they're used to doing things and this is uh, if not a rogue agent uh, somebody who's behaving in an aberrant manner for that particular facility and I wonder about that and the culture and indeed if it's how that occurs and, and I bring this up because uh, the airport I fly out of here in the northeast in the New York metro area I, I think our, our tower personnel there I have to say unfortunately are substandard uh-huh. And in fact, can be rude, and uh, in and could in some instances, I think, be dangerous due to their unresponsiveness. If you were to come in 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 uh, hard IFR and need some help and like get some information on winds, and mm-hmm. uh, coming back on a recent flight uh, with a friend who'd 
been flying with me that day, and we flew down to uh, Roanoke. We were in North Carolina working controllers the whole way, and we came back to the airport and took a couple of calls before they would respond, which, again, is kind of unfortunately par for the course. Then made me repeat what I had just said, that, mm-hmm. that I had the information, which the information was, et cetera, et cetera. They were rude, and the passenger, who, again, didn't have much experience except from flying around and hearing how friendly and helpful everybody else was, that what's, what's his problem? <laughs> and uh, I did call the tower chief the following day and was finally able to get a hold of the tower chief and express my concerns the tower chief went back and listened to the tape and said, you know, look, uh, there's nothing really actionable here, but I want you to know we're trying hard to change things here at this facility, and it's very difficult. Hmm. So I don't know how one does change the culture, but obviously there are problems in the facility you dealt with with one individual or culturally in other places, and I just wonder what can be done about that and whether that's something uh, other people really contend with and, and feel strongly about. Well, I would have two points of response. One, I see the same kind of thing at my local control tower. I, there, some of the uh, problems I've had out there, I've, I've written about, I've, I've uh, talked with other people about. The issue, I think, is uh, an attitude, attitudinal issue with controllers. I don't think it's as much related to uh, flibs versus airline traffic, especially at these towers as it is just an overall attitude of the controllers who are the ones who are controlling the traffic. And uh, they're the ones, quote, in control, unquote, where, uh, as I've also said before, if I hit something, or like another airplane, they're probably going to feel real bad about it, but I'm not going to feel a thing. <laughs> but I think what needs to be done is I think pilots need to be more proactive and, and, and James, you 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 took the correct action. You telephoned the facility chief. I took what I considered to be correct action in in initiating a formal complaint. Dave, I'm sure you've taken similar actions. But I think ultimately that's what GA pilots need to be doing: is not so much pounding the table, but initiating a dialogue with mm-hmm. these facilities and trying to understand better understand perhaps their perspective and making sure that they better understand our perspective and our needs. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's great. This doesn't have to be combative, but it does need to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, let's move on here. Um, yeah. I wanted to, to jump in here with a, a couple of little things here. I've got, I wanted to share with you an, an email we got a little while ago from one of our listeners. This is an email from Ron in California. In his email, Ron writes, He says, Ron here from Northern California just started listening and heard your request for intros. He writes, "Uh, I started flying in 1979 and earned my PPL in 1980 and then had a few periods of not flying. When I started up again last year, I wanted to finish the instrument rating that I had almost gotten 17 years uh, earlier. I did that in a few months and now love flying in the clouds, too. He writes, I'm a part owner of a 1975-172. I mainly fly that and sometimes rent when I need to as a backup. I'm also starting to work on the commercial rating as I'd like to become a CFI part-time and let others pay for my flying fix. And that's from Ron in California. More power to him. Absolutely. Good plan. 
Ron is based at Palo Alto Airport in California, which is the first part of a little bit of a mystical convergence that's that's happened to me here. The second thing I wanted to kind of throw in here is a little bit of a shout out to a a, a fellow aviation podcast out there that I've been enjoying. It's called The Finer Points. It's a weekly podcast by a guy named Jason Miller, who's a CFI out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And each episode, he presents a little lesson about uh, one subject or another or product that can help uh, improve the safety of your flying. Miller's a professional musician, so the podcast has a very musical flavor. Um, In his website, he describes his podcast like this. It says, uh, Miller developed the idea for the finer points as a way to integrate his two passions, music and flying. He writes, these weekly podcasts deliver all sorts of CFI wisdom and sometimes include interviews of other professionals in the aviation industry. So uh, he does a lot of interesting things. For example, in an episode, a few episodes back, he had an interview with a guy who he called Captain Rod, uh, who is a member of the Civil Air Patrol, and they talked a lot about uh, how to maximize your chance of being found if you have to land uh, out in the wilderness. Uh, And there was some interesting information there. Recently, he's had a two-part a series on tips on how to improve the quality of your landings. So uh, I've been enjoying the finer points, and uh, he's been doing the podcast since October 2005. And if you're interested, you can find it uh, through the iTunes Store or his website is thefinerpoints.net. And uh, I, I urge cool. you to take take a listen. Now here's the mystical convergence part. Um, at the beginning of every episode of the finer points, he has a little intro, as we all do. In his intro. Each episode, he has a different little snippet of radio chatter from like between the tower and an aircraft or so forth. And in one recent episode, I'm listening, and, and you know, you're not really completely listening to the intro. You know, you're kind of thinking about other things. And I hear a little bit of radio chatter, and the radio chatter is Palo Alto Tower, Cessna 491907, ready to take off. All right. Well, my attention was suddenly on the podcast, and I had this warm little kind of feeling in my chest because two things. First of all, Palo Alto Tower uh, is Palo Alto Airport in, in Palo Alto, California. That's the airport where I learned how to fly. Oh, wow. And, and in fact, that was my home airport for 12 years when I lived out in the California area. So that's, that's, that's nice enough. But the re- thing that really got my attention is that Cessna 491907 is an airplane that I've flown a lot. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, as a matter of fact, it was one of my favorite airplanes. When I, when I was in Palo Alto, I was a member of the West Valley Flying Club, uh, which is a fairly large flying club based there at Palo Alto. Uh, and uh, I flew a lot of their uh, 152s, a few of their 172s, and their archers and so forth. And, uh, and I logged a lot of time in 197. I really liked that airplane. It kind of, when you have a choice, when you're in a club that has a choice of airplanes, you kind of develop favorites. You know, there's ones that sure. has the radio that you like, you know, or the feeling that you like, or the paint job that you like, or whatever. And 197 was, was one of my favorites. I went back and looked in my logbook. And the first time I flew in, in 491907 was August 24th, 1990. And it was oh, a, wow. a training flight when I was preparing for my check ride. Uh, How cool! And uh, so, uh, so it was. Talk it's, about a small world. Uh, that's yeah. exactly my yeah. thought. It's a really, really small world. Uh, it turns out that Jason Miller of the Finer Points podcast is actually a CFI at West Valley Flying Club, ah! which used to be my home. And uh, I, I don't believe he was there when I was there. I've been gone for a few years now, um, but he is on the staff there now, and and it, it truly is a small world. So that is uh, very cool. Now that I I don't know. The breakdown, but how many, if you go to uh, a flight school now that has Cessnas and 172s, are they going to be 
new 172s, and what has that done to the, the hourly cost of renting these aircraft, and what sort of impact is that having, does anybody know, on, on students and their ability to kind of get started learning? Well, the newer ones definitely rent for more money than the older ones do, uh, whether you're renting it as a flight student or uh, as a fully-fledged qualified pilot, uh, you know, renting one out of the FBO for a weekend away. And that's largely due to the fact that they're nicer interiors, newer radios, and in better condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Around, yeah. Here, I can, around here, I can rent a 150 for... Uh, for 45 bucks an hour and a 172 for uh, 55 and 60 bucks an hour. Wow. And I, I think that's, that's probably fairly below the standard in other parts of the country. Yeah, I think I think it is too. Around here, I haven't priced it formally because I, I have my own airplane, but uh, I would guess a, a newer, and newer being five, you know, three, four, five year old Skyhawk would go for upwards of 110 an hour. Wait. Right. I have no idea what. Uh, instructors go for at retail. It is clearly uh, a much more expensive proposition for a, a primary student to come in uh, and, and learn how to fly than it used to be, but everything else is going up also. I, I shouldn't say this, but I will. When I was getting my private ticket, the aircraft I primarily flew was a Cessna 150 through the local Civil Air Patrol squadron. I got that airplane for $3.25 an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. Buy my own, buy my own gas, and uh, eighty octane. If, if anybody remembers, eighty octane was forty seven cents a gallon. Yeah, well, that was back in the thirties when things were cheaper, Joe. Exactly right. Exactly right. This this was back uh, before World War Two. They they added a prescription flying benefit to your Medicare. Yet? <laughs> yeah, they're they're going to soon. I've got the paperwork already. Well, we're uh, we're trying to keep this one a little bit shorter, but uh, are there a couple more uh, stories on our list that you guys want to touch on before we move along here? Today starts uh, AOPA Expo oh, yeah. uh, out, at, out in Palm Springs. They have something like 100 airplanes that made the uh, the parade of planes down uh, one of the streets there in Palm Springs yesterday morning. A good time should be had by all. Unfortunately, none of us will have will will be able to be there this year, and and we'll live vicariously through those of our listeners who do. So, any feedback certainly from our listeners would be appreciated, and uh, we'll try to incorporate that into our next podcast. Absolutely. And, and if you hear this in time, and you've got the opportunity, dropping into the convention center there at Palm Springs, even to spend the closing hours at Expo, is a worthwhile visit. It's good use of your time. It's probably one of the most effective little trade shows uh, in terms of new products and industry items that you're ever going to come across geared to the owner pilot and the individual pilot like us. It is in its way uh, every bit the equal to NBAA for that audience. And the uh, the list of workshops and seminars are uh, every bit as stunning and diverse as what you'd find at Oshkosh. So. If you have the time, the inclination, and the opportunity, you could do a lot worse use of your time than to spend a few hours at AOPA Expo, whether this year in Palm Springs or next year or any year. What, what Dave yeah. said. Yeah. What, I, I've always thought that uh, that uh, parade of airplanes thing was very cool. I actually never got a chance to see it, but the pictures I've seen make it look pretty cool. Do they actually, do they actually like taxi the airplanes under yeah. their own power and uh, yeah. yeah for people who haven't aren't familiar with this that i mean they literally drive the airplane drive taxi the airplanes from the local <laughs> airport to the convention center along city streets you know i mean and of they course used to do that. 
They used to do that at most of the cities where they held the convention, and in much the same way that uh, NBAA has outgrown most of the United States cities, places that can host them, Palm Springs, AOPA told me recently, is now the only city left on their regular calendar that can host the Parade of Plains event. Huh. Is that for because the, the, the streets aren't wide enough or something? Or, or do they well, just it's won't mostly surface street logistics and the ability of the convention center right. to accommodate the static display. Yeah. It's a combination of the two. I know we have too many potholes here in New York for it to work. <laughs> the nice thing about Palm Springs is they've got these wide, uh, clear boulevards uh, that run six lanes and, and, and seven lanes in some cases that uh, run pretty easily from the airport to the convention center. And then the convention center is surrounded by uh, uh, some very wide streets that allow it. In this case, they've got so many airplanes that the convention center is literally encompassed on more than three sides hmm. of the four-sided building. It runs about uh, 300 degrees in, out of 360 around the building. Yeah, I mean, we just finished up with MBAA. Is there any new news that we're expecting from AOPA? There were some tidbits that we were expecting, to, or I expect will come out in further details about the Cirrus jet, uh -huh. uh, possibly some more information about the Piper jet. I anticipate uh, if it hasn't happened while I've been here somewhat out of touch with the real world that uh, we might hear or see the delivery of the first Sino-Swearingen SJ-30-2. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And were we expecting to hear something more about uh, Cessna's LSA entry? Yeah, I was reading just this morning that they're actually going to have it on display there. I, and I'm not sure whether it's the one that flew or whether they've got another one. The one we saw at, at Oshkosh, of course, had no interior. Um, and uh, I'd be curious to see how well, they rig... Well, that's the one that has subsequently flown. So uh, I don't know whether they were going to have a mock-up there or the actual airplane, uh. but they were not expecting to make an announcement there. They're still saying that that's a first-quarter decision. Right. And with this gentleman, I'm going to have to pay the premature farewell. Uh -huh, okay. Because uh, you're going to uh, bust out of that place, huh? I'm about to. Okay. Uh, Great. Okay. Congratulations, Dave. Take care of yourself. It's been yeah. a treat, and uh, I'll be sure and give this a listen as soon as it's on the on the uh, on the website and see what we sound like live from the hospital. Okay, <laughs> take care of yourself, Dave. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, on that note, are there any other uh, big things we ought to be covering here? Any last words that anybody has? Any little items that you want to shout outs you want to make to things? Well, not necessarily. I think a couple of things to. Uh, Look at in the near future in the in the aviation uh, news arena generally. Uh, one is I think we discussed this in our in our most recent uh, podcast. The FAA has a uh, panel that it has put together, which would look at the prospect of raising the age sixty limit for airline pilots. Mm -hmm. We would expect some action, some recommendations from that panel. Within the next 60 to 90 days, I would guess, perhaps around the first of the year, the the punchline is that ICAO rules require have a mandatory uh, retirement age of 65. Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. rules are still at age 60, and the panel has been charged with the task of bringing U.S. rules into compliance with ICAO, so that foreign-operated uh, aircraft, especially foreign-scheduled carriers 
don't have to rejuggle their pilots and crews to comply with U.S. regulations. It's kind of the, 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 the foot in the door, if you will, the camel's nose under the tent of eliminating the age 60 rule and, and increasing that age limit perhaps to 65 or so. Uh -huh. And do they continue to base this all, the FAA, on medical reasons or are there indeed the underlying economic factors also at play in the FAA decision in terms of younger pilots want to have places to move up to and if senior captains are sitting there an extra five years they're not going to get a chance to and the airlines would rather not pay senior captains those uh, those top wages they've kind of graduated to after those years of service. These are all factors and in, in, uh, in, in the FAA's decision and I would hasten to add that very little of the current rationale for the age 60 rule has anything to do with pilots health or life expectancy rates or anything like that. The, the age 60 rule has its genesis in, in politics between airlines and airline pilots and it's continued in place as a result of those same politics. Yeah. So how this will get resolved uh, certainly does not directly affect general aviation but is certainly an interesting side note if you will and, and will certainly be productive and, and uh, uh, instructive yeah. uh, of how, how the FAA resolves these issues and, and where the airline industry will be going next. Well, let me just, if, if I could uh, say, add something here that does affect G that's always struck me as being somewhat odd from the medical standpoint, and that is all of the conditions that effectively can throw one out of the sky or, or ground one for medical reasons uh, uh, because you're taking this or that medication. If if you're not fit to fly, are you fit to be driving an automobile several feet away from others coming at you at a closing speed of over 100 miles an hour? I would think there's a lot more danger in that. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think one of the uh, issues or one of the concerns the FAA has has to do with altitude. Clearly, when you're driving a car around your home uh, neighborhood, for example, the, the the difference in altitude is 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 perhaps non-existent. Uh, but I can go out on a day when I'm perhaps not feeling so well, get in my airplane and climb into the low teens without much fuss or bother, and my condition could be drastically worsened by that change in altitude. A very interesting, very a, a very true, and in fact, here's an area where the FAA's rules, I think aren't stringent enough from a medical standpoint, but from a regulatory one, uh, you're not going to get pilots in the mountains who may have to climb up just to get over a pass to have oxygen on board, but the rules regarding when you have to start using them at 12.5 for a half an hour, uh, really, if you're flying at uh, eight or 9,000 feet for a few hours as you would on a cross-country without oxygen, you are going to be hypoxic when you land. Yeah. I agree, and just as with so many other FAA rules, the FAA's rules on oxygen use for pilots and passengers are minimum standards. Pilots, operators are free to, to exceed those rules at their uh, uh, whim. And I generally, on a cross-country flight, if I'm in the, the 10 or 11,000 foot range, I will generally put on oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me feel better. It, it, it dehydrates me a little bit and, and because you're breathing uh, very dry air. But that's why people carry water bottles. 
and mm -hmm. uh, uh, especially at night when visual acuity can be affected uh, it's always a good idea when you're at altitude for an extended period of time to uh, take a few puffs on the O2 bottle and uh, not only will you feel better but you'll fly better I, I agree 100% you'll not only feel better while you're flying but the next day you won't be dragging ass uh -huh. Like you would with it. Why do I feel a little lousy today? <laughs> I just I just sat in an airplane for five hours. Why am I so tired? <laughs> exactly you know, the most, right. The most compelling argument I ever heard on this whole age sixty thing was from. Um, um, now I think his name was Captain Haynes. He was ah, a, yeah, oh, sure. Oh, oh yeah. Um, the captain of the Iowa. United flight that lost its hydraulics and limped in and managed to uh, make a spectacular but. Land, a landing in Iowa that saved many of the people on board, um, and and he was on the lecture circuit for many years after that, talking about the experience, and I believe that I heard him actually after he had to retire because he turned sixty. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I, I, be, becoming an older person myself, I, I in general am not in favor of these rules that arbitrarily limit people because of age, um, as you can imagine. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm inclined to think that performance-related metrics are, are, are more valuable. But Haynes was asked whether he opposed the age 60 requirement. People, I think, expected, because he had so much respect at that point, everyone was just thought he was a real hero. I think people expected him to oppose the age 60 thing, and, and he said no. He said, he said I, I actually don't have a problem with the age 60 retirement because, he said, he said, maybe it should be another age, he said. That's another question, he said. But there's going to be something that causes a pilot to retire, and it shouldn't be an incident that gets somebody hurt. Right? There needs to be some trigger. And and right now, age he seemed to think was the the most reasonable one that they could come up with, and uh, you know I'd I'd like to find one that was performance related, but I don't know what it was. And I th always thought that was interesting, his perspective on it. it. That is an interesting perspective, and it's not necessarily one with which I would disagree. I think it, it it's interesting also. I think Haynes at the time of that accident was uh, 59 and change. In other words, he was relatively close to retirement when that, that accident occurred. He survived. A number of other people survived, in my opinion, simply because of the skill and experience in the cockpit, yeah. which, for which there is simply no replacement. If we look at some of the more visible accidents in recent years uh, involving 121 uh, flights, generally those accidents have involved younger, less experienced crews. I think of the uh, the jet stream that crashed in Missouri a year or two ago. I think of the, the regional jet the, the, that was empty except for the two pilots who uh, were out trying to figure out how high they could get their RJ and uh, mm -hmm. basically took it too high to inflamed it out and dead, had to dead stick the airplane. That's uh, indicative of a lack of experience. Uh, experience can only be accumulated over time, and I guess that's kind of my my uh, mm -hmm. my twenty cents on that subject. Yeah. Subject. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap this thing up? No, um, I appreciate our listeners. Appreciate the feedback. Regret the the delay in in getting this uh, next episode out on the streets, but look for more from us uh, and some new voices. I think uh, in the near future. Yes, yes, that'll be very exciting. We're gonna. I mean, it's great to have James, and we're going to have even more new voices with us uh, in the near future, I think. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys, always a pleasure to talk about GA, so 
with the two together has been fantastic. Thanks so much. Same same here. Same here. James Winbrandt is an author and aviation journalist. Dave Higdon, who's left us a little early, but uh, is on the mend now, aviation photographer, freelance writer. He's at DaveHigdon.com. Jeb Burnside uh, with Aviation Safety Magazine and AvWeb. You can find him at AviationSafetyMagazine.com or AvWeb. It's Av- is there an AvWebBiz.com domain? Or no, it's, it's just the AvWeb.com. Business Everything Aviation product is incorporated into the site. And I'm Jack Hodgson, JackHodgson.com. Thank everyone for listening. Take care. Ribbon of black Stretched to the point Of no turning back Flight of fancy On a windswept field Standing alone My senses real You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. This irresistible grasp Can't keep my eyes from the circling sky